I want to invite you back next week. I hope you'll come next week. Uh, Raymond, guy in our church that leads our Arabic ministry. We're going to be doing a, an extended interview with him. And I'm just excited for you to be able to hear what God's doing around the world, but also here in our community and in our church. I hope you'll be sure to be with us next week. Let me pray with you as we get started. Father, we bow in your presence, and we're so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for your word that just clearly lays out for us what you would have, what kind of people you would have us to be, and how really that's just the best way to do life. And so, Lord, as we look into it now, <clears throat> we invite you to speak to our hearts and our lives as only you can. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Will you be the one? Will you be the one? Right now we're asking you to pick one of six words that we're looking at in a series called Words to Live By. And we're inviting you to live with that word, to do life with that word, to pray about that word, to open God's word and study what it is, just to pick one of them. And just say, Lord, I want to listen to Jesus. And I just give you permission to take this word and amplify it in my life. I want it to be a living, breathing reality in my life. And I want to be an example, a Christ follower that lives in light of this word. In, in fact, this week, I was speaking with a family in our church who've done that. They've each picked a word and they've... Uh, had discussions around that. They've prayed for one another about whichever word it is that they've picked. And they're seeking to grow together as a family in the word that God led them to. I know right now our young adults, our children, our youth are all at the same time studying the same words that we're studying. And so this is just a wonderful opportunity to talk about these things with friends or with your family and to just say, Jesus, would you allow this, this biblical word to be formed in me? And so we began with the word flourish from Psalm 92, which talks about the fact that those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish. We talked about how we've got to stop having the mindset of I'm going to church to check an attendance box, and instead I'm going to be uh, serving and being the church, not only in the facility, but out in the community, or whatever the case may be. We talked about honor, we talked about loyalty, we talked about integrity. Next week, Pastor Aaron is going to talk about serving, but today I'm imagining you've guessed which one it is, and it's pretty obvious in the passage. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to, talk, to turn in your device or in your Bible to Luke chapter 17, and we're going to talk about gratitude. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. It's the third historical account, biography of the life of Jesus. 
before I begin reading these verses, I want to set the scene for you a little bit. Jesus is in northern Israel, in the land they call the Galilee, which is around the Sea of Galilee. If you chart his life and ministry, most of his ministry took place in the area of the Galilee, all around the Sea of Galilee. And he is beginning in our passage to head south. He's done this a number of times in his ministry, but this is the last time because he's heading down to Jerusalem with full knowledge that he's going to Jerusalem to die for you and me. He's going to die on the cross, really to be murdered on the cross because he's totally innocent and they knew it. And he does that for my sin and for your sin as well. And so he's heading down from the Galilee, and he stops and he is doing ministry in different uh, communities as he goes. And as he goes, he's passing sort of the borderland, sort of the no man's land between the nation of Samaria and the land of the Galilee in Israel. Now understand that Samaritan people are people that had some Jewish ancestry, but they also had the blood of different nations flowing in their veins. And because of this, Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other, and typically they were sworn enemies. An Orthodox Jew, you could recognize a person based on how they're dressed. And an Orthodox Jew, a practicing Jew at that time, if they saw a Samaritan coming down the road, would cross to the other side of the road to avoid any level of contact with them. Of course, as is always the case with Jesus, he goes completely countercultural and flies in the face of social convention and has a heart for the people of Samaria. With this in mind, we begin reading in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity, have pity on us. So he's heading into this village. We don't know which village. There's 10 guys that have leprosy. They're at a quite a distance away, and they're crying out. They're begging for help. And many of us have seen pictures probably on the internet or whatever of someone with leprosy, or as it's commonly called today, Hansen's disease. And you have to understand that in the scripture, leprosy is sort of a catch-all phrase describing seven different types of skin infections. And so the, the scriptures talk about this in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. And so if, what's going on here is that it, it's just a very difficult situation to go through. And the, in those chapters in Leviticus, there's a bunch of protocols laid out. If you have an, a, a skin disease, you had to present yourself to the priest and the priest would examine you and they'd send you away for a while and you'd come back to see if it got better. And there was a whole protocol that they went through. This kind of disease comes with acute pain. 
as a person's nerves become inflamed and extremely sensitive at the beginning especially. And eventually they begin to discover unexplained lesions. The skin begins to discolor in places. And then a type of numbness begins to set in in the affected skin areas. Now these, this numbness typically leads to other serious injuries because if you have a numbness in your arm right here, for us, if we're too close to the stove or the heat, we know to pull away and we can feel it and we don't get burned. But when there's this numbness, additional injuries, serious injuries and physical uh, disfigurement begins to take place. As I mentioned in Leviticus chapter 13, um, when someone would become afflicted with what they suspected was an infectious, contagious skin disease, to protect the rest of the community, they had several protocols in place, and they wanted to make sure that everyone knew this was what was going on. And so you were told, you can read it in that chapter, that they were to wear torn clothing. They wanted you to be able to be seen from a distance with torn clothing. Then you had to keep your hair, if you were privileged to have hair, unkempt. Then you were told, and this is interesting in our times, you were told to cover the bottom of your face. The reality we're living in now. And you were told that you had to go and live alone you had to socially distance and live outside of the community or outside of the, the place where you lived. And finally, if you had to travel anywhere and you came across someone, um, you needed to call out in a loud voice, unclean, unclean. I want you to try and imagine with me, and I don't think we can. Try to imagine going through acute physical pain and a numbness comes and you have additional physical disconfiguration imagine the emotional pain these people would be going through you're cut off there's the loss of relationship you're living in relative isolation you can't have contact there's no intimacy that person that you used to hug or used to high five or elbow bump or whatever you can't do that anymore since this has happened. And this is what they're living with. But all of a sudden, they begin to hear rumors about Jesus. Everyone in Israel had heard about him. There's this guy that can teach like no one else. He confounds the teachers of the land. They come and they try to trick him. They ask him loaded questions, and he can cut right through the chaff and get to the heart of the matter every time. When he teaches, people are dumbfounded. They've never heard teaching like this before. And miracles. He performs miracles, and he heals people. Can you imagine the excitement these guys had? They've heard that he's coming. They're calling ahead with their cell phones, telling people that Jesus is making his way towards their village. When I was in the Middle East and I'd be walking, I was walking in Bethlehem and I could see all the merchants down the road. They're calling ahead to their friends because telling them that we're coming. And so they hear the rumor, he's coming towards our village. Imagine the hope 
that these 10 guys are entertaining. I might, I just might get my life back. I might get my life back. For me, this would be the miracle of miracles. Verse 14. When they saw him, when he saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. When Jesus sees them, his heart is broken for these hurting people, as it always was for hurting people, because of his love for people. And he says, follow the protocols of Leviticus chapter 13 go and 14. Go and find the priests and present yourself. And you're going to inherit in this is you're going to need to demonstrate faith. You're going to need to obey and demonstrate faith because the text says they weren't healed immediately. And so they have to go and find the priest. I don't know where the priests are. I don't know how far a journey it was. Maybe they didn't even know for sure where the priests were at that point. But they go on a journey to find the priests. And as they're on the journey, the text tells us they are healed. And they present themselves to the priest. The priest examines the lesions that are no longer there. They are declared healed. Imagine that. They're declared healed. And they're allowed to re-enter society. Miracle. Healed. Disease gone. My greatest dream realized. My My most outlandish prayer has been answered. My life has been given back to me. My life has changed forever. Then something incredibly shocking, just shocking happens. Let's read verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. Only one of the ten comes back. And he is praising God for all he's worth in a loud voice. He is very, he's celebrating. And everyone in the immediate vicinity knows what's going on. They can hear what he's doing. They can, he, they can see what's happened. They know who this guy is. If you've ever lived in a small town, everybody knows everybody's business. He throws himself in verse 16. He launches himself at Jesus' feet and he thanks him. And it says, and he was a Samaritan. Let's keep reading. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one else found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, and your faith faith has made you well. It would seem to me as I read this text that Jesus is dumbfounded. Are you kidding me? Only one person came back? Why did only this foreigner come back? He's not saying that in a disparaging type way. It's just a recognition way. And and there's even greater shock because remember, the Samaritans and the Jews are enemies that have nothing to do with one another. So it's an even bigger deal that this Samaritan guy came back. And this is yet one more time that you see scattered all through the Older Testament and all through the Newer Testament where the grace of God is on display, where God says, I love all the peoples of the world. 
It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what your uh, home language or your mother language was. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. I love you. You're my creation. And I want a relationship with you. I want you to be part of the family of God. And this is clearly on display in this passage as well. That Jesus goes countercultural, and he says it's inappropriate to hate these people simply because of their nationality. I love them, and I'm there for them. And that grace is extended to them. Their lives were on complete hold. Couldn't work, really couldn't travel, dependent on others the pariah of their community, ostracized by their community, sick, depressed, you name it. They beg for relief. They cry out for relief. And God answers them. Has God ever answered a prayer for you? Now, let's just think for a second. Maybe the other nine weren't really bad guys. Maybe they're just thinking to themselves, oh, you know, I want to go see my family. I'm super stoked about this. Or maybe they were married before they caught this disease and they want to go and tell their wife. Or maybe, just maybe, they were apathetic and just felt entitled. Do you think many people in our world, especially in our little corner of the world here in North America, just feel entitled? I I do. I think many of us over many issues just feel entitled. I expect the butter to be in the fridge. I just deserve it. Big question. Will you be the one? Will you be the one? Now notice with me that It could be, I'm just guessing here, that the other nine in passing said, thanks God, or or even felt thankful. But notice that Jesus only commends the one who openly, openly expressed gratitude. The one who went out of his way. The one who did it in an unmistakable way. The one who did it so that everybody noticed what he was doing. That's the only one that Jesus commends. He's also the only one that learned a very important life lesson that in a way that I don't really understand, this is one of the mysteries of God, in a way that I don't really understand, his faith played a role in his healing. It says that in verse 19, go, you're you're healed, your faith has made you well. And so the idea is, is that there's this partnership that God's the senior partner, that God does all the work. He makes it happen. He does the healing. But in some way, I don't really get. He allows us to be junior partners in the situation, and we have some some role in it. So they learn this very important lesson that the other nine missed about our relationship with God and how that works. I would also argue and I would suggest that grateful Christians understand and experience God's grace much more fully in the sense that when you're a grateful Christian, you appreciate it 
and you've received this grace and you just grow in your relationship with God. You grow in your appreciation with Him. You go to Him that much more readily because you've seen what He's done and you're thankful for it. These are important things to learn. The nine missed out completely. Will you be the one? Why is it some people are grateful people and others just feel entitled? It's kind of hard to say. I don't really know. But, but maybe a better question is, what are you missing out on from God when you live as an ungrateful, entitled person? And not just with God. What about the people that God brings into your life? The people that have cared for you, that have blessed you, that have helped you when you needed help. Um, have you stopped and written them that thank you note? Or sent them that email or sent them that text to express your gratitude? Or, or sat them down and looked them right in the eye and said, thank you so much for what you did for me. And I know we don't have Kid Zone today, but to go back into Kid Zone and to say to that leader or small group leader back there, uh, thanks for investing in my kid. Thanks for talking to them about butter and the Word of God and not taking things for granted and feeling like you're owed this. And instead, cultivating a, grat- a heart of gratitude. Have you gone to the coach? Have you gone to the teacher? Again, imagine, I can't even imagine how hard it is to be a teacher right now with the illnesses and the question marks and I'm sick a little bit so now I got to get a sub and I got to get ready for that. You know, it's complicated. To, to say to your small group leader, thank you for praying for me when I lost my job. You have no idea what that meant to me. Thank you for bringing meals over when my grandma died. Or saying thank you to your mom, to your dad, to your boss, to your pastor. Will you be the one to show honor and gratitude? Or will you be like so many people today? I had it coming to me. I'm one of the nine. An ungrateful mindset. I think there's a couple of phrases that capture it from a story nearby here in Scripture. And let me just mention them to you. Well-known story. And, And the two phrases that capture it is, I want it now. That's the first one. We are conditioned in our world to think, I am entitled to this, I demand this, I want it yesterday, and we're thinking to ourselves, isn't there anything faster than a microwave? And in Luke 15, just a couple pages previous, there's a story of the prodigal son, which is really a parable as a story about how God the Father relates to us. But in the story, the father has two sons. The younger son comes to him in verses 11 and 12 and says, I want my share of the inheritance and I want it now. I want what I'm entitled to and I want it now. Now, normally in that day, especially, you would only receive that upon the death of your father. But he wouldn't wait. I don't want to wait. I want what's coming to me, and I want it now. And I want to be able to use it as I see fit. And I know, Father, that by the way I was raised, you won't like how I want to spend that money. You won't allow me to spend that money like that. I want to go out and make sinful, wrong kinds of choices. 
And so for whatever reason, the father gives it to him. Son goes out, blows it all on wrong decisions, sinful decisions, horrible decisions. And a lifetime of hard work is wasted because Junior wanted it now. And everyone suffers. You know, when we make sinful choices, we often, this is really selfish of us, we think to ourselves, I'm the only one suffering here because of my sinful choices. No, no, it casts a wide wake. And typically everyone around us and close to us suffers when we make those kind of choices. And that's certainly the case in that story. But we are taught to be entitled. I want it now. And so we buy more than we need, sooner than we need it. And everyone suffers when we make those kind of choices. The second one is, I deserve more. First one says, I want it now. Second one says, I deserve more. The older brother, who's still working at the farm, one day he hears that his younger brother has returned. He's destitute. He's starving. But he comes back with a repentant heart. Read the story. He's learned, I would suggest, from his dad how to be a repentant person. He comes back with a repentant heart and he asks for help. And again, this is a picture in this parable in 15 of Luke of what our Heavenly Father is like. Well, the Heavenly Father, uh, when, as the Son comes back, as the Son repents, he welcomes him back with open arms. He throws a huge party. And as you read that passage, I always think to myself, I am so glad... So glad that God's grace doesn't give me what I deserve, but instead gives me what Jesus did on my behalf by paying for my sin in full. Well, the older brother is choked. He's angry and he says, nobody did this for me. I deserve that and more. Somebody owes me. And we, it translates into this kind of wording for us. I deserve a better job. I deserve all those benefits that they're getting. I deserve the vacation of my dreams. If I'm 12 years old, I deserve a better cell phone than Sally that sits in the decks beside me. I deserve a new car. And, and you've heard me say this kind of stuff many times. There's nothing wrong with things. There's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with being wise with your money so that you can be an even more generous person. There's nothing wrong with things. But God completely condemns the love of things when they become one of the gods in our life. And we would never articulate it that way. But when it becomes more important than anything else, it's the God in our life. But God condemns the love of things and he condemns, as we see in this passage, an ungrateful, entitled mindset that says, I deserve more and puts us in the court of the nine rather than the court of the one. So what would God say to us about any ungratefulness that has creeped into our life? Because I think there's this cultural creep going on that starts to nibble at us, this cultural creep that teaches us to think this way. And so let's just have the courage to ask God to explain in our life in three areas one area and it would look like this in the material or financial to have a material or financial ungratefulness in our life what does that sound like it might sound something like this my TV isn't good enough I really need a 75 inch TV downstairs and a 55 inch upstairs 
I need a bigger and a better house. I have to have just the right countertops, the quartz ones. My, my kids can't share a bedroom. We have to have an ensuite with two sinks because we couldn't possibly get ready with one sink. I have a closet full of clothes, but I have nothing to wear. My car is five years old and I don't have heated seats. Oh, woe is me. I go into, you know, I go into huge debt that causes everyone around me that loves me, that I love, to suffer so that I can have heated seats or dual climate control. And it creeps in. The nine. Or what about relational ungratefulness? Those parents are trying to horn in on my life. My husband, I demand that he be more of a spiritual leader. I wish he was handier. I wish he would help more around the house. And it's good for husbands to do those things. Not saying that. But I'm saying there's this entitled idea that doesn't have a sense of gratefulness to it. Or the wife that's my wife, I wish she, I wish she wasn't always talking to her friends. She never has time for me. I wish she was more adventuresome. I wish she had a better paying job. I don't have a girlfriend. I wish my boyfriend wasn't so lazy. All this kind of stuff. And if you are relationally ungrateful, admit it and say, yes, that's true about me. Or circumstantially ungrateful. I don't like my hair. I wish I had hair. I don't get the breaks at work that everybody else gets. Why not me? How come them? And so how do we go, how do we begin to move from this entitled approach to life to a grateful approach to life, to a life of, of gratitude? Well, to say, to say, Spirit of God, fill me, and Jesus, help me to begin to see life and to turn every part of life into an opportunity to praise you. I love, there's a couple of verses in Proverbs. Let me read them to you. They're just awesome verses. Listen to this. Chapter 15. It says this. It says, the cheerful heart has a continual feast. The cheerful heart has a continual feast. The cheerful heart, it's like Thanksgiving every day. Our Arabic friends are having a special dinner this afternoon food from Egypt and Lebanon and some of their delicacies. It's like those kind of meals every day when we have a cheerful heart. The cheerful heart has a continual feast, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. And so it's coming to this place where we say, Jesus, I want to be a gracious person. I want to have that cheerful disposition because of how you've cared for me. So Jesus, the next time I go to say or I go to think, I'm sick of my car. Lord Jesus, may there be a check in my spirit and may I stop right then and rather than say, I'm sick of my car, say, thank you God that I have a car. Thank you that actually that by having a car, that puts me in the top percentages in terms of wealth in all of the world. If we look at ourselves, if you have a house and a car, you are among the richest of the rich in all the world. My house is too small. 
Let there be a check in my spirit instead, and I say, thank you, God, that I have a warm place to shelter me. Thank you that you have protected me from the Lethbridge wind. Thank you that, you know, the snow's not going to come for two months. Here's hoping. Thank you that you're going to protect me from the rain that's supposed to come this week. Thank you that I have running water. Thank you that I have safe water to drink. Piles of people die around the world from contaminated water. Thank you that I have running safe water to drink. I don't like my job. You know, there's no problem with getting a better job. Go to class at night or something like that, work harder, apply, whatever. That's fine. Great thing to do. But instead of, I don't like my job, God, I praise you. And I am so grateful that I have a job. I'm so grateful. I heard this week that about a million Canadians don't have a job right now. Now, some of them don't want a job. That's not right. But there's a pile of them out there that want a job. We should be grateful we have a job. And then here's the hub thing that I think if you get this one right, the other ones kind of all sort themselves out. Something that we have to keep central in our life every day. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you went down to Jerusalem from the Galilee that last time in Luke chapter 17, knowing full well what was going to happen. You knew exactly what was going to take place, blow by blow, and you still came, even though all the boys were telling you, don't go. We're afraid they're going to kill you. And you knew they were going to kill you, and you still came. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you stood in the gap for me. Thank you that because of you, I'm forgiven. That's like the, the greatest gift in the world. Thank you that because of you, I'm a citizen of heaven, and I no longer have a one-way ticket to hell. You see, you get that in perspective and you get that right, I think the other things all sort of start to fall into proper place. God, forgive me for my ungratefulness. God, have mercy on my spirit of entitlement. I want to be a grateful person with a cheerful, joy-filled heart. I want to read a prayer to you that I think is just very apropos because many of us, if not most of us, are going to be involved in helping prepare a special meal this weekend. And it's called a liturgy, and it's called a liturgy for the hurried preparation of a meal. Just listen to this. Lord, I have little time to build this meal, but I will still make of it a holy offering. Let me work into these rapid preparations a care and a kindness for those who will partake. Even in our common haste, may this meal serve as a catalyst for a deeper grace, reminding us to be ever thankful. Let those who share this food embrace the fellowship of the moment, however fleeting. And let them rise from the table knowing that even in their comings and their goings, they are nurtured and loved. Grant also, O Lord, that we at other times in our busy lives might make ample margin for more unhurried meals and for a more leisurely fellowship. Amen. I want to be a grateful person with a cheerful, joy-filled heart.
Six words to live by. Today's word is gratitude. And today's question is, will you be the one?